We'll have America's elections become a We'll have America's elections become a TV reality show. Well, writer and humorist Matthew Hiley thinks so and will happily show us why today. And he's the American and is the American icon of the self-made man job creator really a myth? Well, one job creator says yes and tells us why. It's all here today on Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in California. I'm co-hosting with my friend and colleague, Chuck Morse. He's in Boston, Massachusetts. We broadcast every day, Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. on CyberStation USA Network, the Blog Talk Radio Network, and our radio affiliates. It's March 7th. 2002 and we are pushing the boundaries of radio we are listening to voices from all sides of the issues of the day well let me introduce one of those voices that's my friend and colleague our co-host chuck morris hi chuck how are you patrick i'm good did you go to uh, romney's victory party in boston last night no but uh, i certainly stayed up and watched a lot of coverage and um, i have some thoughts about mitt romney that i'd like to share I'd love to hear them. Uh, go go for it. You know, Mitt Romney, I think, shows a certain insecurity in, in, in public that, that really isn't him in private. And I think that there are two reasons for that. The first reason is because I think Mitt Romney, throughout his life, both private and public, has been very defensive about his religion. Hmm. He knows that Mormonism is unpopular and both on the right and the left, apparently. Um, and he uh, he's very, you know, it's kind of created a certain uh, nervousness around that topic. And I say that because I, I was at an event with Mitt Romney many years ago, a Republican event in Massachusetts when he was governor. And at that event, I was escorted by my, I was running for office, I was escorted by my good friend Sam Blumenfeld. You know Sam. I know Sam. One of these people that, when you're in a political campaign, it's good to bring him around as kind of a, a sidekick because he's a good conversationalist and he breaks the ice well with people. Every politician has one. I had several. We all have many of them. And Sam, when, when we got our chance to talk to Mitt Romney, Sam brought up in a very friendly way his, uh, something about Mormons. Hmm. And a look came across Romney when he brought up the word Mormon that was like, uh-oh, You know, I'm about to get in trouble here. And then when he saw that Sam was saying something friendly, he relaxed. But you'll see that he never talks about, he'll never say the word Mormon in public. And I think that it's created a situation in his own life and also politically that he's, it makes him more reticent than he should be to to be himself publicly. And the other issue is what happened to his father when he ran for president in 1968. I don't remember the exact quote, but he was interviewed by a a local reporter. It wasn't something that was part of his policy. And he made some really crazy comment, some dumb remark about the Vietnam War and that he had been brainwashed. And the media grabbed onto this, and they made it look like George Romney was insane and that he was not fit to be president. And it just, not only did it destroy his candidacy, but it ruined his reputation. And he really, even personally, he never really recovered from that. It's kind of like similar to what happened to Howard Dean with that Yahoo. You know, the media kept running that over yeah. and over again. And every time Howard Dean pokes his head out now, you know, you're going to have someone in the media run that Yahoo tape. You know, these things are very damaging 
to people because the media latches on to them. And I think because of that, Mitt Romney is, is nervous. He's afraid he's going to do the same thing his father did that so totally changed his father's career. And so he's very guarded, and he's, he's in a sense, he's almost saying things that aren't quite right out of the nervousness that he might say something that's not quite right. You may be onto something. Yeah, so, so as a result, he's not relaxed. He comes across as reticent. The truth is that he's actually brilliant, and he's actually a very well-thought-out guy. But he's, uh, when he's in public, he has certain fears that I think are as a result of these two things primarily. You know, you, you may be onto something. I, I've never met him personally, but obviously, like you, I've, I've watched a, a lot of uh, his appearances, both in debates and, and with the public. And uh, you're right; he never seems to be comfortable in his own skin, and uh, that that could be very much a part of it. And as a result, he makes the mistakes that his father made. That's right. Uh, it's true. It's you know, tough thing. When you're so focused on not saying something off, you're going to say something off. And yeah. and um, he said a lot and, of them. He has, but the point is he's probably not going to say something really crazy like his father did to to give the media something, but he's going to have these and he did it as governor too he has these he he called it these gotcha moments, yeah, he makes these awkward malapropisms yeah the uh, the ten thousand dollar bet was one on on yeah. the dean uh, the dean scream right um, actually uh, and and you're absolutely right to pick that out. What was going on there is that there was a huge amount of noise, and Howard was trying to make himself heard to somebody across the room, and he had to scream. And the media caught it on tape. They eliminated all the noise, and it sounded like he was a crazy man. And uh, there it goes. And, of course, it it works the other way, too. Sometimes the media will pick something like the uh, I Have a Dream speech, and that will become the iconic uh, signature of that particular person. So it can work both ways, but I think you're right in, in in uh, Romney's case, it did work that way. Um, last night, uh, and I'm sorry you didn't go to the victory party because it was in right, your, right. In your and, neighborhood. And just for the record, yeah. I, I don't think that's what happened with Howard Dean. I mean, I've seen that enough times. I don't know why he did it, but he clearly was giving a Yahoo at the end of that comment. And, and even like Tom Harkin who was standing next to him looked at him like, what are you doing? But it was so loud because the room was so loud, and I talked to him about that too. Right. Uh, well, the, uh, and, and it didn't mean anything. I'm just no. Of course it didn't. That yeah. it, it it looked crazy. Yeah. And it just uh, it was caught on tape and and there it was. It's always those there. Those things. Yeah. Um, on the uh, the victory party last night, he actually looked more comfortable than I've seen him in a long time. And maybe it's because, as he said, he's finally home after two months. So right. And of course, he did. Well, he didn't exactly win a lot. It's still inconclusive, and he just squeaked through Ohio. But uh, he, he, I'm sure he was inside. He was going. Now that's over with. I can take a day off and be with my family. You know? I know that's that's probably true. And he yeah. won. He won seven out of eleven states. Yeah, he did. But the biggie, of course, he only won by one percent, and that was Ohio. But, true. Uh, and I wonder if there wasn't some of the same phenomena. They say there was that happened in Michigan. Democrats voting for Santorum. I, people who obviously yeah. don't want to see Santorum president. I, I don't know. If those I think were, they called it Operation Outrageous. Yeah, I don't know if those were open primaries or not. I didn't. I didn't see anything on that. We have to take a quick break yeah. and um, welcome in our radio listeners. Okay. I'm Patrick O'Hippernan, welcoming our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay and KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon. 
And I'm co-hosting today's edition of the Fairness Radio from Los Angeles with Chuck Morse. He's in Boston, and I want you to join us. You can join us by email at fairnessradio at gmail.com. You can also call in at 424-675-6806. I want to give a shout-out to our sponsor. We're going to talk a little bit more about our sponsor, Barton Publishing, later on in the show, but just but we're being brought to you by Barton Publishing. Barton Publishing is a way for you to manage your body and your health without resorting to expensive and toxic over-the-counter drugs and also save yourself some money. That's www.bartonpublishing.com. Uh, well, Chuck, uh, I did go to a party last night. Uh, the um, Drinking Liberally, which is a national organization, rented out the uh, the Hammer Museum in Westwood last night, and we invited all five of the Republican clubs to come. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many of them came. I, I, I did see a smattering of Romney buttons in the crowd. There were a lot of people there. There must have been 350 people there. Um, I, I talked to a lot of people. I didn't I didn't get to talk to anybody who was overtly Republican, uh, but I, I certainly hope they came. But uh, what I found in that particular party, and maybe because it was mostly Democrats, is that most people ignored the results because there were three big, huge screens with CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC on, all giving the results constantly. Most people were busy uh, talking to one another. I didn't hear any cheers when um, a Santorum uh, victory was announced in the states that he won. I did hear, and I thought this was kind of funny, I did hear a uh, a cheer when um, Gingrich was announced as the winner in Georgia. So we must have had somebody from from Georgia there. And, mm-hmm. and uh, But from what I, I gather on this one is that they're just going to continue to stumble along, that um, our, our our next guest who will be with us in about four minutes or so has characterized the American political system as something akin to a reality TV show. And uh, I think we saw a little bit of it last night. But I'm sorry you missed the party. It looked like it was a great party. Was Is the Hammer Museum named after Armand Hammer? It is. Uh-huh. It is. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's an interesting figure in history, right? Yes, and, and his uh, grandson, Army Hammer, who's, of course, a, a television star, too. Is he? Yeah. So. Where is, was he uh, news or... Entertainment, uh, entertainment, drama, you know, soaps oh, okay. and things like that, um, and, hmm. and lives nearby. But yeah, that's who it was named after. We should try. I can see if we can interview him on on the topic of his grandfather. Well, that's an idea. Uh, I don't know hmm. if he'll, he'll talk about it. Maybe there was a good book written about Armand Hammer many years by uh, Alan J. Epstein. Well, maybe you ought to uh, quickly tell our listeners who Armand Hammer was. Well, he founded Occidental Petroleum. Him and his right. father founded Occidental Petroleum. His father being Julius Hammer, and uh, this is just a very interesting history of their interactions with the Soviet Union, all the way up to um, really the 1980s. Yeah, uh-huh. um, and I, sh- I should also point out to our our listeners uh, in both in Los Angeles and whoever visit Los Angeles that Armand is one word; it's not Arm and Hammer. That's the the baking soda, so it's Armand Hammer. Right, and he did found Occidental uh, Oil, but Occidental College is not named after Occidental Oil. Right. So a lot of people get those two confused. Okay, I really, th- I really hope that Duke Gingrich drops out, but um, I think that he's driven by ego. <laughs> and I thought Santorum, even though I don't think he should be in it, and he's not presidential, and he's certainly stepped in it a bunch of times, and and has damaged uh, the whole process. At the same time, he looked great when he accepted that 
when when he came out, and he said things. I don't know if you heard the speech. I did. But it was. Didn't that make you think of some of the things that I talk about? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was great red meat stuff. You know. Yeah. We're a nation that's uh, you know not of. Um, you know, of law, of laws, and not men, and that 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 uh, you know, rights come from the creator, and not from the state, and uh, it's just stuff that really I love. You know, he really is a genuine person. I just don't think that he's he, he's going to go all the way, and I think that it's a matter of pragmatism. That that I mean, I'd love to see him as president, but I just don't think he's going to make it. Well, even though. I think that if uh, Rick Santorum was president, he would destroy the, the the republic. I think that was the best speech he's ever given. And he looked tremendous. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was really a, an amazing thing. He's he's uh, I think he's as surprised as anybody. I mean, he's oh yeah. You know, he's not a rich guy. I mean, he's apparently had to take a leave of absence, and he's living off of his savings. And you know, he's really out there doing this thing, and it's it's amazing. I mean, I could just I really identify with that. I understand. I mean, he's a, and he's a player. You know, he really is capturing something. I mean, unfortunately, I think that Romney has a problem in the South, mainly because of Mormonism, but also because they don't like Massachusetts. We have a, a caller. Uh, caller, want to introduce yourself? Hello? Hello you're on Doc- the air. Oh, Dr. Heffernan, this is Albert Navarra. Albert. Hi, Albert. Hi, Albert. <laughs> nice to I hear from it. you, Albert. What's on your mind? Okay. Not too much. I think I tapped in on the wrong line here. <laughs> I think you did. We'll, well, we'll be talking to you tomorrow, so um, okay. we'll tap in tomorrow. We're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to have a, a, a very humorous guest with us. Stay tuned. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Mike, are you on the line? No, Dr. Heffernan? Oh, you're still there. Hi. Yeah, uh, I thought we were on tomorrow. today. I'm so sorry. Oh, tomorrow. Okay. Uh, no okay. problem. Same time then. Talk to you tomorrow. Okay, thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Well, we're back. Our guest is due on in about three minutes, so uh, we'll uh, continue there. Uh as, as I said, I completely agree with you that um, he looked very good. That Rick Santorum looked very good last night. He looked very comfortable. And I think maybe there was a little bit of, boy, we got through that one. Um, well, I think he was surprised by how well he did. And, um, you know, he really captured quite a bit. By the way, yeah. this is a little footnote. Yeah. Randall Terry carried 15 counties in uh, Oklahoma in the Democratic primary. I don't know if you know that. No, I didn't know. What is Randall Terry doing running as a Democrat? He is. I mean, what, how we huh. can talk about what he's doing, I, I think you could make some good points about that. But nevertheless, he is running as a Democrat. Oh, he's sure. qualified to get on the ballot in several states because he's been registered as a Democrat long enough to do that. And he carried 15 counties in Oklahoma and 18% of the vote, which means yeah. that he's crossed the threshold because you right. had to get over 15% in order to qualify for delegates. He now will have delegates. That's right. He'll oh, be attending the Democratic Convention in, in Charlotte. Oh, this is going to be fun. Uh, of course, Oklahoma is the reddest state in the nation, so it doesn't right. surprise me, but you're right. This is going to be fun. Well, we have a guest, um, and uh, we are back now, and I wanted just to remind our audience that this is Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and you can be part of the show, 424-675-6806. 
You can also email us, fairnessradio at gmail.com. Well, many people say, as we have been discussing, that the Republican primary and to some extent the 2008 election resembled a TV reality show full of odd characters doing and saying odd things and kind of an unscripted story that sort of stumbles along of its own momentum. One of those people is Matthew Hiley. He calls himself an equal opportunity offender. He's a writer, blogger, and humorist. He's neither left nor right, and his newest book, The Candidates, Based on a True Country, that's all one title, The Candidates Based on a True Country, is laugh out loud funny in its unique way of approaching politics. Well, to celebrate the inconclusive outcome of Super Tuesday, Matthew is with us today, and and he's going to give us his observations on what is and what is not going on in the hustings. Matthew, welcome to Fairness Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, for those of you... uh, for those of our listeners who have not read your book, but who should read your book, could you give us a peek into its characters and story? Sure. Um, the book is about uh, Skip LaDouche and his his uh, campaign chairman, who is Duke Hatchett. They are the, uh, the Republican team. And Harry Pinko and Moondog Freelove, they are the presidential candidate and the campaign chairman on the Democratic side, and basically uh, they're both completely unqualified for the office, self-serving, creating false realities of what they what they stand for, who they are, uh, complete narcissists, uh, and they, of course, each have 50% of the country completely behind them and supporting them and out there waving the flags for them, and uh, they each get caught up in, affair, in an affair with... Uh, with Gimme Fame Whore, who uh, is a reality TV star, and they both basically find out that they're both having an affair with the same woman, have her killed, and then decide that they each need to just finish the job with each other and kill each other. So the book is uh, them going back and forth and attempting to actually kill each other as opposed as opposed to just figuratively, which is what we see going on every single day. They just kind of take it to the next level, and it just kind of draws all of the parallels with with everything, all the rhetoric that we see from each side. It just kind of takes it takes it a little bit to, to the next level, and uh, it's it's for someone who's it's for people who are looking to just sit back and eat the popcorn and and laugh at at the madness that's going on these days. That that are tired of it, how how seriously people are taking it and bashing each other and just destroying each other. Well, well on the one hand, this is serious. We're, we're, we're uh, electing the next leader of the most powerful country in, in the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, go that, ahead. And I, I, would hope that, I would hope that someday uh, our, our two parties would, would take that seriously. Um, I, I don't feel like they've done that. Um uh, what uh, what are you referring to there? And you say the two parties, so obviously, like you said, you're an equal opportunity offender. What have the Republicans done that shows they're not serious, and what have the Democrats done that shows they're not serious? Can you give us some specific stories? Sure. Um, the Republicans, I, I'm, I'm admittedly a little bit harder on the Republicans. Uh, they, I had been a Republican for my whole life, and I was a big John McCain guy going into the 2000 elections, um, and I just didn't like the 
the way that the whole Carl Rove, George Bush team was doing anything to win and just destroying him with uh, all all the stories that we've that we've heard there. Um, and he got knocked out. And, and I'm from Texas, so you have to be a Republican or else people put hits out on you. And <laughs> so I was kind of vocal that I just didn't like George W. And this is such a well-oiled machine now that if I spoke out about not liking George W., I was just, I was a liberal. <laughs> I was just this horrible, horrible liberal guy. And I had always been pretty conservative. And I, uh, I kind of had to take a step back and and take it all in and uh and basically uh I, I didn't vote I voted libertarian in 2004 and in 2000 McCain came back around in 08 and gosh you know I I was so jaded by the Republicans at that time I actually had a hard time deciding who I wanted between Obama and McCain I, I socially I I kind of had an awakening. I was able to step back and and look at how much of what was being spewed out there was was actually BS from the side that I really wanted to be a part of. And well, they just didn't want me to be a part of them anymore. So I uh, I, I went begrudgingly for McCain, even though he had Palin that I that I couldn't stand. And uh, I, I think I'm supposed to be getting around to answering a question here, aren't I? Um. Um. Gosh, what what have each side each well, side? Well, before you they answer don't my question, what, uh, yes. Before you answer my question, since you brought it up, this weekend we're going to reprise that campaign with two dueling documentaries on Sarah Palin. So, <laughs> so, so these things just never end, do they? No, they never they never end, and it's both sides are are playing to playing to the emotions i think i think rove really created a monster i mean obviously things have always been divisive and and there's always been a good bit of sparring going on i think rove what he did was he took away the he took away um candidates wanting to inspire people and instead found ways to get 51% divide and get 51% and win. It's an anything-to-win approach. And I don't see anything inspiring coming out of the right. Out of the left, you know, I actually, one of the things that is really odd for me to say these days is I actually think Obama's done a pretty good job. Um, and as someone who was a Republican, it feels really funny saying something like that because that machine's so well-oiled and they, and they get you to uh, really attack people who make similar comments, but uh, I think he's done a pretty good job. I don't agree with a lot of what he does. Fiscally, I consider myself a conservative, but he's been pretty fiscally conservative. Socially, I'm pretty liberal. So, you know, who's the better match for me right now? There so are we'll, no fiscal conservatives on the Republican side. No, so we'll, we'll back. Back to my question, Ken, and, and this this will involve uh, President Obama too. Have, have there been any specific inc- incidents that you can point to that that, that are really ridiculous? Um, I think when he was campaigning, uh, he came out as you know he was going to end the war in Iraq, close down Gitmo, you know, get get the whole socialized medicine thing going. And when you look at what happened. 
Uh, he took all the soldiers from Iraq. He put them in Afghanistan, getting those still up and running. And socialized medicine, he basically wrote socialized medicine on the top of a piece of paper and had the Republicans fill it out for him. <laughs> it, 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 I think well, that's pretty absurd. I, 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 I could debate that one for, for a while, but uh, let me introduce you to my, uh, my, my co-host, uh, Chuck Morris. Thanks, Patrick, and, and nice to hear you, Matthew. Fiscally conservative? Me <laughs> I mean, he's raised a, he's raised a, the, the national debt by a, a trillion and a half dollars, and our bond rating has gone down. And uh, you know, these are things that uh, maybe could be papered over now, but they're having huge long-term consequences around the world. Nothing fiscally sure. conservative. I mean, can you give me an example of where Obama's been fiscally conservative? He's continued all of Bush's tax cuts. Oh, that's all right. I'll grant you that. In, in a sense, he's kept Bush's some of Bush's policies, but that's not because that's because the Republicans won the House. Believe me, I mean they, well, they well, he had every intention of rescinding those, and uh, I'm glad he did it. Uh, but uh, I, you know, generally fiscally conservative. I mean, uh, you know, the other things you've said are, are, are accurate, but that one, uh, I don't think so. I don't think he's necessarily fiscally conservative. I don't think Republicans are fiscally conservative. And when it comes to the economy, I kind of think the economy is like a reality show of its own where the, that false reality is created all the time. Mm -hmm. You've got the right side. Going back to Reagan, you've got Reagan, the king of no tax hikes, who raised taxes 12 times, you know, him and the senior Bush. If you look at, you look at the, the reality show of the economy that they're trying to perpetuate out there, you know, that going back to Reagan and Bush presidencies, they created this environment for our economy to grow and prosper, which Clinton was given all the credit for. Then he made the drive for then Clinton made the drive for everyone to be able to get a home loan, which led to George W. stepping into this difficult job inheriting a mess. And due to the way Clinton handled the economy, George W. was made to look bad and as the markets crashed, W passed tax reform, stimulus bills, bailouts that turned the economy back in the right direction which Obama is now being given the credit for, and even though they say we're heading in the wrong direction. But then on the left side, the other side of the reality show, that what they're trying to perpetuate is Clinton inherited a mess from Reagan and Bush, and he was able to turn things around and have years of prosperity, balanced budget. He handed it over to Bush, who was like a bull in a china shop with the economy. Bush single-handedly destroyed the world market, regulated banking, warmongering, crony capitalism, now Obama has to turn things around, and we're headed in the right direction, according to them. So it's it's the whole who do you want to listen to thing. There are facts to substantiate each side. It's it goes back to my my whole thing of I wish everyone would disavow their party. I wish <laughs> well, everyone would you know, look at it. I mean, first of all, it was it was Clinton and uh, Robert Rubin and uh, Larry Summers that deregulated the banking. But and Bush really couldn't do much about that because there were people in Congress like Barney Frank who wouldn't let him. But they, look, I mean, you, you know, certainly the Republicans are not as fiscally conservative as one would like, but generally speaking, they're more so. I mean, it's a matter of degrees. I don't expect that anyone to go back to the days of Calvin Coolidge, but uh, you know, they're all big government people. But it's a matter of degrees, and in a time like this when our bond rating is falling and we've got a national debt that's almost $16 trillion, and that's going to have consequences. 
you you want to go with 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 a uh, a government that's going to at least be you know relatively more fiscally conservative th- than another government. And I think that the, perhaps the reason why Ro- Obama again has been restrained is because of the Republican victory in Congress in the House. And I I think that's a, a theory versus reality debate. In theory, I'd love to be a Republican. I, I, I wish I could be a Republican. In theory, in reality, they they don't do anything that they say they're going to do. Democrats are are very guilty as well. I'm I'm not advocating either side. I'm harder on the Republicans because I expected a lot more out of them, and they just absolutely would not deliver. They don't allow free thought. They don't allow the debate to take place. Hey guys, I think we're doing it wrong. Hey, maybe maybe uh, more freedom should extend, extend to gay rights, things like that. You know, um, I, I think that the Republican mantra has been tarnished, and they've kind of offered up the head of common sense as sacrifice. Yeah, I think that they do stand for freedom of, of, of thought and speech. They may not be in favor of having the public have to pay for things, but I guess my question to you is, what do you got against Karl Rove? Karl Rove. I Karl Rove. Doing... Pardon me? The infamous Sven Jolly that's behind everything. <laughs> oh, I, I just... I don't believe in in anything to win approach, and I think both sides are guilty of that. Right. He just I mean, to have his name more prominently attached. That's what um, I was going to say. I mean, every 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 one of these guys has a version of Karl Rove. I mean, um, you sure. know, we it's it's a matter of um, you know w- which side. I mean, you know, I suppose Karl Rove is very, was very good at, at at this. You know, I mean, yeah. we now know that Obama has Solyndra Lake. Who uh, runs a, a PR firm that came up with this whole di- whole idea of um, irritating women with uh, the, the contraception issue, which Obama has followed. So they all have sure. their strategists, and it's all very cynical. You know, it's it's all like, what can we do to what what Dick Morris used to say, and Dick Morris, of course, was Clinton's guy. You know, to create a triangulation and a wedge between people, and as a way to peel off votes. I mean. You know, you, you point to this as something that uh, certainly is not unique to the Republicans. It's uh, and it is it's cynical. I mean, there's no coming out of that. You don't have any kind of anything you can take away that's positive or that that, that raises your spirits. I mean, I agree with that. They just the Republicans got a lot better at it, and as we as we see and as we know, in in pretty much all of the campaigns that, that we've seen. With the exception of the last presidential race, the Republicans are just a lot more buttoned down. They're a lot better at the organization of campaigning and getting people to get out and vote. They've typically shown that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rove, Rove, uh, he's he's just really good at something that I think is really wrong with our country. What's that? Just the the whole divisiveness. Uh, right. I, I mean, I don't know a lot about Rove. I mean, I've been watching him as a um, as a uh, correspondent on Fox, and I, I generally find him to be somebody who actually, by standards of these types of political operatives who whisper in your ear, and by the way, I even had one when I ran for office, I think he actually does have a couple of scruples. I mean, he seems to have a vision. You know, he does seem to generally want to see something good for the country. He's not just... 
he's not a, and he's not a party hack. He's not like a pom pom holder who's just going to talk about oh the Republicans are all good and the Democrats are all evil. You know, he actually has some fairly good analysis based on realities. Uh, uh, Mike, uh, since you're in Texas, uh, isn't it the case that Karl Rove is the one who started the rumors uh, when uh, Bush, George Bush was running for governor that um, his that Ann Richards was actually a lesbian, and which is like you know, when the election for him? I've heard. I have no idea. I, I've heard okay. similar things. Uh, I wouldn't. I mean, I'm I'm in no position to substantiate that. Okay. It sounds like something you would do, oh, so but uh, I'm, I'm definitely in no the, position to substantiate that. That's one of the stories that circulates about Carl Rove. Uh, incidentally, uh, Chuck, on Celinda Lake, and I know Celinda Lake, she didn't start that. She she observed that the Republicans were overreaching, and this was an article in Politico, and that the Democrats could take advantage of it, and by doing so they would bring in single women who vote in larger numbers than uh, the suburban women. You're referring to... Um, um, Aaron Klein's article in uh, in his blog site that is full of errors and mistakes. So well, I, just to right, be no, correct I, I that. I, well, let's let's not you know let's talk about what's true and not true on this, Patrick. You have your side, I have mine. My understanding is that she did start it because she came up with this idea before it was uh, an issue in the Republican Party, and then it was introduced by George Stephanopoulos at the debate. When remember he was badgering Mitt Romney, what do you think of contraception? What do you, and Romney's scratching his head, like, what are you talking about? That's not an issue. That, that was after Rick Santorum had, had already dropped his con- contraception bomb. And no, the the, came no up. you're wrong. It was at the same – Rick Santorum then got the question, and then he responded stupidly by falling into the trap. It was not before. <laughs> Check your chronology. Okay, I, I, I will do that. Thank uh, you. And we'll I, see if, if – yes, I am not knowledgeable enough on that subject to, okay. uh, to speak intelligently. Um, well, I, I wanted to say that these are things that that both sides cook up as little traps, and you know, like George Bush killed my father, you know, during the campaign with the chains behind the truck. It's very nasty. And if Carl Rove was behind calling Ann Richards a lesbian, that's pretty bad. But you know, I don't know if the, if he did or not. Who knows where that might have come from? But, well, that's actually a story that that has been in uh, the Texas mythology for, and I don't know if it's mythology or not, for some time. That was done with a push pole. Yeah. Uh, telephone push poll and whether and Carl Rove was supposed, supposedly behind it. I wouldn't doubt it. That's lousy. I mean, that's, that's hard politics. That's what happens, yeah. you know, like behind the scenes. You know, when you get these, and they both sides do this. You know, well, both sides don't do it. Well, uh, Mike, is there anything else yes, that, that comes up uh, in 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 your book that that we should be aware of that's particularly um, illustrative of today's politics? Oh gosh. You know, I, I keep thinking back when I when I watch these these debates and these speeches. Uh, uh, one of the one of the most fun things to write um, about this book, and it's it's not a serious book. It's it's just a it, it's just something that's fun to sit back and and laugh at at everything that we see going on. The most fun parts to write were writing the campaign commercials that each side would have against each other. And then the debates that people would have against each other, just basing them on a lot of these ads that, that we always see, uh, just tapping into the fear with, uh, you know, those, that side's going to kill your children. That side's going to make your kids turn gay. Uh, yeah, that and side's I mean, taking away your Social Security. Right. Patrick, you know, yeah, I he, said that both sides do it because that's an honest 
observation, and you know I could mention hundreds of examples. And, and I could do this. Uh, yes, hundreds, of course, but the point is that, you said that, only, that you said that only one side does it. Is no, I didn't somehow, say that. No, yes, you did. No, you didn't. just said only they do it. Yes, you did. We could go back and replay the tape. My point is that that is an example of what, why you're just such a party loyalist. Of course both sides do it. The Republicans do it a lot more, and they're so much better, and I think we are now being an illustration of why this is a TV reality show. Would you say that, Mike? Uh, yes, it's Matt, and I would, I would, I would definitely argue that, um, that both sides do it, but I would, I would also argue that the Republicans are a lot better at it. They are a lot more skilled at it, um, and I think it's... Maybe. I think it's apparent when when you have Barack Obama having to bring out his birth certificate, um, uh, you know that's that's unprecedented. Now, do to you have see, something like that occur? Matt, do you, do you see the whole the, the birth certificate flap um, as part of this reality show as sort of a side issue that that makes oh. everything kind of silly? It's it's all it's all tying into this this false reality that each side's created. They're not just creating false realities for themselves; they're creating them for what other people. They're creating for their opponents. I mean, look at Rick Santorum and what he said about Kennedy uh, had said in that speech where he was speaking about separation of church and state. He, he was basically saying that Kennedy was saying, uh, you know, there shouldn't be religious people in office. Uh, you know, right, that was right around the time that he said, you know, people are snobs for wanting their kids to go to get an education, I guess. Uh, yeah, I but, mean, uh, Santorum has admitted that that was – a stupid remark, and you know he shouldn't. He shouldn't have said that. It shows how undisciplined he is. But um, I don't. As far as the birth certificate issue goes, I mean, Dan Rather was fired from CBS for trying to claim that George Bush went AWOL while he was in the National Guard using a using a very shoddy source of information. So you know whether or not, and as far as the birth certificate goes, I don't like the issue. But there is a sheriff in Arizona who is apparently bringing indictments against people for. Um, Fraudulently creating Barack Obama's birth certificate. Now, whether or not that happens, we'll see. Well, it, it, it hasn't happened, and we are just about out of time, uh, Matthew. So, well, once again, I want to say thank you. Um, the book is, candid- is the candidates based on a true country. That's all one word, all one title. The candidates based on a true country, and I know it's just been released, Matthew. So, where can people get it? Well, it's, uh, it's available in download and in print on Amazon. It's available for download at iTunes. You can go to thecandidatesbook.com and uh, and be linked to all those and, and read a little excerpt from the book. Um, but uh, give it a give it a shot. It's getting some good reviews, and uh, it was a lot of fun to write. I, I really appreciate you guys having me on, and I, I definitely appreciate you guys having a show that that this has both sides. Okay, well, we appreciate, Thank you, Matthew. we appreciate you being uh, part of the show. Thank you, Matthew. We're going to take a, a, a little break right now. This is uh, Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and we'll be right back.
We are back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're broadcasting on Blog Talk Radio, on Cyber Station USA, and on our terrestrial radio stations. And and I want to let our uh, our listeners know that uh, we are not on Cyber Station USA today. Uh, we will be hopefully back tomorrow. They're still finishing up their upgrade. There's a lot of complicated little pieces that go into a radio station, and they're trying to get them all all together. But uh, we love our Blog Talk audience. And our Blog Talk audience, don't forget, you can call us, 424-675-6806. You can also email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. And uh, we love to uh, hear your voice on our air, and we also uh, love to, to read your emails on the air. Um, I noticed, Chuck, that there were a couple of big international uh, events uh, yesterday. The, uh, first of all, Obama, President Obama came out and said that uh, he is not going to uh, involve the United States in any kind of military activity in Syria. Uh, and I, I completely agree with him on that one. It's much too complicated, and we have no idea who, what, what would come out of it. And uh, negotiations have reopened with Iran over its nuclear um, or, not, or non-nuclear weapon um, uh, research, too. So those things are moving along quite nicely. And here in California, Shimon Perez was over at Facebook. Yeah. Uh, um, and apparently he had a great time, too. There's a... Uh, he he did a, a live um, a, a live talk at Facebook to all the employees, but it's actually on the Facebook page. You can uh, do, do a search for Shimon uh, Perez. And uh, I know Facebook is really popular in Israel because I have m- all of my Israeli cousins have Facebooked me, have befriended me. Oh really? Oh yeah. Oh good. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Well, he, Shimon Perez now has a Facebook page. Right. Well, that's so, apparently so doesn't the Pope. Did you see that? No, he's. They had. A, I saw him in the news, twittering. He's doing a Twitter. I'll be not well. Vatican. Uh, somehow, I think it's probably not the Pope. But uh, anyway, yeah, they showed a video. There was a news clip of him literally sitting there at the table with the Twitter, and he had like a um, a, a tablet. You know, one of those. Yeah. Um, iPad. Apple iPads. Yeah, my daughter has one, and he's he's twittering. I guess he likes this stuff. Apparently, he's very into it. Well, uh, it, it's a. a, a an important communication uh, source these days. So, so there's an iPad in your house, huh? Yeah, my daughter definitely has all of her technology, and she's into all of it. Uh, have you played with the iPad? No, I don't go anywhere near it. <laughs> it sounds like it's toxic or something. <laughs> yeah, I just don't, I don't do iPad. Uh, well, the iPads are, are may at some point uh, overtake. Well, they have overtaken computers. Uh, they may replace uh, laptop computers. No, I appreciate it. It's cool, but I just uh, I don't have any need, yeah. any reason to go to go there. Well, we have one in our house too, but. Uh, uh, I, I like to play with it, but my, my wife generally keeps it pretty close to uh, to her. Well, I was very pleased to see the uh, announcement about Syria. I know there had been some talk that we might get involved in that. Um, but um, uh, I think the last thing we need right now is to get into any kind of a war with anybody. Well, you know, the thing about Iran is actually troubling, and I'll say that because um, George Bush was, was suckered by the Iranians under the same pretext um, he um, right after uh, you know that w- when it became evident that they were building nuclear facilities in centrifuge, Bush said, you know, we can't tolerate Iran with a nuclear bomb, and uh, if they don't stop it, we're going to uh, we're going to take it out. And then he was approached by Javier Cue- not, not Javier de Cuella, who was the, oh who was the head of the European Union? Um, At the same time, I don't know. 
Yeah, his name escapes me, very famous name. And he said, look, we're going to set up a, um, a triad of negotiators from Britain, France, and Germany uh, to negotiate with Ahmadinejad. Give us a year or give us two years and we will negotiate them not not going nuclear, you know, or just having like a very small nuclear plant that, that'll that'll get inspected regularly and and whatnot. And that uh, you know, keep the military option on the table and we'll certainly have that with us as a um, as a deterrent, but it'll not be the front news. We're gonna focus on negotiation. And so Bush went along with it. And then two years later, um Oh, his name escapes me. Very famous name, big UN guy, um, who was the head of this uh, committee. Two years later, they're in Tehran to sign an agreement with Ahmadinejad, and while they were there at the hotel, the uh, Iranian government announced that they had just had achieved uh, centrifuges and that they had just uh, engaged. In other words, it was a complete slap in the face. All along, they were developing it at breakneck speed. And they humiliated the the negotiators publicly, and they they basically left the country with a tail between their legs. And at this point now, because they were able to buy two years of time, they they, they are much further along in the development. So I think that it's you know I, I wouldn't want to say naive, but it's you know given the track record, it's troubling that all of a sudden everyone's going to say oh good you know we're going to have uh, you know the Iranians are not going to do this and. Uh, they're going to, you know, be peaceful. I mean, in a sense, the same thing happened with North Korea, where um, Madeleine Albright went there and announced with a big flourish as Secretary of State that the North Koreans had suspended their nuclear development in exchange for money and food. And then we found out three years later that they had not missed a day in terms of developing it because they detonated one. Yeah. Well, uh, all those lessons, I think, have been learned. Uh, uh, Guido Westerveld, the uh, German foreign minister, told Iranians uh, yesterday, point blank, that if uh, it looks like they're using uh, these talks to, in order to stall while they continue to develop, develop, they may find themselves at the wrong end of a military attack. Um, and I, I think there may be some good cop, bad cop going on here uh, with the United States and Israel. Uh, and it may be that, you know, those, those supposedly um, frank talks between um, the prime minister and the president are actually part of that game. And I've, I've noticed in, in the foreign policy literature, a couple of people are pointing this out, that uh, with Israel playing the bad cop saying, you look like you're going to put your facilities underground, we're going to take them out. And the United States playing the good cop saying, why don't you just stop everything? You've said you stopped everything. Let us get in there and inspect it, and then you don't have to worry about the bad cop over there bombing you. I think there may be a little bit of that going on here. There's a lot happening below the surface that uh, we're not picking up on. And well, Pat, Germany picked up on it. The so. bottom line is that we can't possibly know what's going on behind the scenes because we're not in a position to know. And um, it's the kind of situation where – you know, you hope that's what's going on, but, um, you know, there also could be uh, mistakes made, and those mistakes could be very, very devastating, especially to Israel. Well, there could be mistakes made in, in a variety of ways. As you point out, uh, the Iranians could uh, subsurface their uh, their nuclear bomb capability and make it very difficult to take out. That would be one mistake. Another mistake would be a peremptory attack on uh, facilities that it turns out weren't making bombs, but which launch a Middle East-wide war 
with hundreds of thousands of rockets raining down on Israel that it doesn't have the capability to defend itself against. So you have well, to kind of walk that line. It's not hundreds of thousands. There's about 10,000, and Israel knows exactly how many okay. of rockets facing Israel from the uh, from southern Lebanon and Gaza, and yeah, you know, it'll be bad, but I think these, once they, to use a, a slang term, once they shoot their wad and it's over, then Israel could go in and clean up the mess. If they have capability left to do so, and well, think I, of all the I, thousands I, of Israelis that would die unnecessarily. No, they, no, I don't think so. I think Israel is prepared, the, the citizens are prepared, they've got underground, you know, very few Israelis, innocent Israelis, died when Hezbollah launched probably about four or 5,000 missiles into, into northern Israel, including missiles that hit Haifa back in the summer of 2009, I think it was, 2008, around that time. You know, that, that, yeah, I mean, there's going to be casualties, but the fact is that once they get it out of their system, the Israelis can go in and mop it up. At least that's the theory. But Well, but, uh, wait a Chuck. Uh, if your point, uh, remember I said that if they launch an attack on facilities that it turns out aren't there, Whoever dies, Israelis or, or Iranians, would have died for a mistake. Well, wait so a that's minute. the mistake we have I, to worry about. I think that it's been clearly and documentedly proven that the, those facilities are there. Now, whether or not they're there to, you know, how far they are in terms of developing nuclear bombs, that's a question. But well, that's the no, question, yes. Yeah, but there's no question that they've got these enormous facilities in Shiraz. Oh, I know. On, and that, and that they're underground and that they're super uh, sealed. But apparently this Canadian company has been involved in making sure that they can withstand bombing. And, you know, there's an enormous amount of development. So I understand. But and I think that if, if this negotiation is really going to have any reality to it, then the Iranians should agree to place those facilities under international control during the negotiation. And then at the end of the negotiation, under the right treaties and under the right agreements, they could be returned to the Iranians with inspectors. Well, no, I, I completely agree. The point I was making is that, yes, you could make a mistake and allow them to get too far and, and create a bomb, but you could also make a mistake in starting a war over, develop, over nuclear weapons that were not being developed, and it turns out they weren't enriching the HEU. So you have to be careful you don't make mistakes either way. I agree completely that the, the Iranians must allow IAEA inspectors in, and, and they must leave the television cameras alone, and they must, uh, they must uh, start uh, um, accounting for the HEU that they are producing. That has, that has to happen, and that apparently is part of the talks. But we don't, we don't want to start a war on, on false premises that leads to people dying, and we don't want to, go to, we don't want to allow a bomb being developed while we were talking. Those are the two problems that we have to solve, and I, and I don't want people to die from, from either one. That, that's the, the line lot, we have lot, to walk. A lot more people are going to die if they develop a bomb, and I think that, again, they have to not just allow inspectors, which is very, very faulty and which is, you know, it's easy to deal with because they're in control. They have to turn those facilities over to a neutral third party throughout the negotiation and then to make sure they're not doing this, and then afterwards uh, they can be returned. Now, as far as whether or not how far along they are, I don't think it's a matter of discovering that they're not far along enough. Israel has a history of taking out nuclear facilities by hostile states. They did it in Iraq in 1982 when they took out the um, Osirak site, and they did it recently in, in 2009 when they took out a nuclear site in Syria. So That's true. 
Uh, no, but either it, one of those uh, had the potential for leading to a Middle East-wide war. This one does, and neither one of those did. could set no. off uh, Hezbollah's rocketry on on Israel or on Europe. You know, they could also fire missiles on Europe too. No, I I, I think that any of those could have led to a, a regional war. They were very dangerous operations, and uh, it, but it had to be done because Israel has to make you know operate in its national security. Well, so so do we, and it's not in our national security for a, a war to be launched in the Middle East, which we would inevitably become part of. So I'm saying that we need to walk this very fine line right. and make sure that neither one of those outcomes happen. I don't think it would result in a war in the Middle East anyways. Well, that's your opinion. Uh, most foreign policy experts disagree with you. You know, they, they'll take out the facilities. Iran doesn't share a border with Israel. They have Israel will be faced with Hezbollah and with uh, Gaza, which I think they can handle. Uh, you know, Syria is distracted, uh, and uh, you know, Egypt is distracted. I don't think it would. I mean, I just, uh, you know, if the United States has a couple of nuclear submarines in the Gulf of, uh, 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 in the Persian Gulf, which is good, and even Israel, they say, has something like that, then I think that it could be contained. It's not like it, it's it's dangerous, and you can never tell. You know, one can never tell when there's a war, but. I think it would be contained, and it would certainly save a lot of lives if they get rid of that thing. Maybe, maybe not. We have an email here asking, uh, so if it becomes necessary, should Israel go nuclear? Should we, especially with their underground facilities? Uh, uh, Israel is nuclear. Israel yeah. has something between 100 and 300 nuclear weapons. We already know that. So uh, right. they are. That, that, that line has been crossed some time ago. It also has the delivery systems for them, too, which adds to the danger, too. Actually, if, if Israel sees it's necessary to use its nuclear weapons, then we have a nuclear war in the Middle East, which could upset the entire world economy and lead to lots of people dying on all various sides. So we have to walk that line very carefully. I don't think that Israel, you know, who knows, Patrick, we don't know the inside of it, but I don't think that Israel needs to use nuclear bombs to stop these facilities. No, they've I don't got, think so either. They've got, you know, they've got ammunition that's short of a nuclear bomb that could probably do the job. You know, remember when uh, Bush first launched the Afghanistan war, remember the talk about the daisy cutter and the this other thing, this, they thread the needle, you know, like a, like a hot yeah, dog. Yeah, the da a daisy cutter is for uh, above-ground above personnel. Well, there was this other thing. This, uh, this bunker busters. That, yeah, that's right. That's it's, like, it's like putting a hot, do a hot dog in a bun. You know, it's like <laughs> you slip it in. I mean, there's technologies that are short of nuclear. That, that could do this, I think. Who yeah. knows? I mean, what, I'm not an expert on this. Yeah, the, the bu bunker busters can uh, uh, hit underground facilities to a certain uh, to a certain depth, and they're pretty good at it. And we also have, there are bunker buster nuclear weapons too that are confined in their their um, their the, the area that they affect, but they're very deep in the area they affect. So. There's technologies to do that. Uh, exactly. But, I mean, certainly if Israel, of them get used. No, if Israel uses nuclear, I mean, that, that could be really, really messy, Yeah. obviously. Yeah, very messy, obviously. Oh. But uh, I'm glad to see that uh, there's moves being made. I'm also very happy to see that we're not going to get involved in the uh, Syrian. And I know that a lot of my progressive friends feel that we should because there is obviously uh, murder and, and rape yeah. and torture going on there. Know. Maybe but, we should. I don't know. I mean, only I don't think so. For no other reason than uh, for humanitarian reasons. I mean, if if you've got people, you know, thousands of people being massacred, uh, and I don't know if it's that bad, then for sheer humanitarian reasons, we probably could go in and at least stop the killing. I mean, there was a lot of criticism, and rightfully, that we did nothing. 
in the Rwanda situation in the 90s, and uh, you know because everybody just stood by and watched as this, yeah. you know, a genocide took place. Now I don't know if it's that bad in Syria, but uh, and it's not a matter of taking sides. I mean I don't think either side is particularly good there. It's a matter of just making sure that uh, the the killing stops. Well, yeah, they're going in and the, uh, down cities. The the, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, pointed out in the congressional testimony yesterday, now rather the Secretary of Defense, that that would require troops on the ground, somebody's troops on the ground, maybe not ours, but somebody's troops. That we're certainly not going to put troops on the ground in, in uh, Syria, and uh, so far nobody else has stepped forward. Now, whether or not we could do a no-fly or no-kill zone, that's something else. He pointed out that a no-fly zone would also be very complicated for us to do uh, logistically. That uh, this is that there is that he sees no way in which we could get involved in re- reducing the casualties in Syria without getting entangled in a number of organizations or disorganizations with whom we have we have no relationship. We don't know who they are. What we do know is that arms are being smuggled in through Turkey, and there's possibly that Subrosa were involved in that. Although I suspect we probably aren't, but. Uh, as long as arms are being smuggled into, into Turkey, at least the uh, Syrian Free Army can continue to operate. But I, I think we need to stay out of that one until it, it gets a little a little better. And, and I agree with you about the, uh, the, 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 the killing that's going on there. But, you know, the killings going on all over the world. The United States can't stop everything. And uh, No, and I don't yeah. think we should get involved in politically in terms of taking sides. But... You know, there is a coalition of, of governments that apparently includes Italy and, uh, I mean, I saw something about this in yeah. the Debka file, which I read recently, that's talking about a joint force simply going into making, to, to ensure that the killings in the city of Homs and in some of the other areas are stopped by observing, not, not getting involved in picking sides, just uh, making sure that the innocents are not just being slaughtered. You know, I don't know. We can't, I don't think it's quite it to just stand by and do nothing about that. At the same time, I don't think it's necessary to get involved in the in the in the dust up because probably both sides are. Who knows? It's like the all sides. You know, it's like the uh, you know which was worse, Hitler or Stalin? You know, I mean, it's uh, you know, they're both sides are probably pretty bad. Well, and actually, in this case, there's many sides, and that's another one of the problems is you can't really identify who is involved. Uh, and and that and that will go on for, for for a while. But it's interesting. You and I kind of uh, change sides on this one because it's usually the left that's arguing for uh, involvement to stop uh, killing, and the right who's who's that's not true. Stay out. That's, that's untrue. You don't you don't think no. so? No, I don't. Okay, well, nope. that's, nope. that's I, my I, feeling on it. No, I, I I don't think you'd have to show some kind of evidence of that. I think that both America generally has liberal, conservative, and otherwise, in situations where there's such a terrible level of human rights abuse that people are really being slaughtered and that it's outright, you know, you know, torture and slaughter. Um, all Americans want to see something done about it. I mean, I don't think the left was screaming too much when um, when Mao Zedong murdered almost 50 million people. Well, of course, you know, the left wasn't really around in order. No, they were it. going to Beijing on on uh, on pilgrimages. People like uh, you know um, Shirley MacLaine and and all of them. No, I mean the point is that I think generally Americans, when they see average Americans, that is, when they see situations of such oppression and and suffering, they do want to respond. Actually. Well, as as long as it's uh, 
that we can do that in, in an effective way. Right. But when and you start saying, yes, we're going to take your sons and your daughters over there, then things get a little a little dicey. And when and we start to say we're going to spend your tax money on it, things get a little dicey. And, and, when, we, and when we start to say we don't really know who those people are, things get a little dicey. So I, I prefer to see us do this uh, kind of sub rosa, but supplying weapons to various sides. Once, once you get involved in a visible way, you're taking sides politically. And uh, we, we saw what happened in Egypt, too. Where, uh, where, we, where the outcome of that was not something that anybody ever predicted and is not definitely in our favor. Well, and not to mention Libya, which apparently is, is kind of a hellhole right now. Um, I saw a story on, on that that uh, said that uh, part of Libya actually wants to break away into an independent state now. It's the part with all the oil. And I don't blame them. Yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, Those probably pretty bad. I mean, the uh, people that uh, took over Tripoli, I think, are apparently are not, not exactly, you know, cheerful type people yeah that's uh you can't really predict these things so we're just about out of time in hour one in fact that's that's it for hour one but don't go away we're going to be back after the news with a multimillionaire who is not a self-made man or a myth for that matter stay tuned you're listening to fairness radio with chuck and patrick Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're broadcasting on the Cyberstation Radio Network and also on Blog Talk Radio, and we're being heard on our radio affiliates. They're in a news break right now, but we are back with Hour 2 of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in Los Angeles, co-hosting with Chuck Morris in Boston. It's March 7th, 2012, and we are the only radio program in America that routinely listens to voices from all sides. So we try to push the boundaries of radio here. We broadcast Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 Eastern, on, again, Cyber Station USA, Blog Talk Radio USA, and radio stations. We'd love to hear your voice, 424-675-6806. You can email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. Also check our Twitter and Facebook feeds and our website, fairnessradio.com. There's a couple new blogs up. We actually are seeing one of our blogs being reprinted in other blogs, so you may see us in other places. And there's also petitions there that you can sign for causes that you support. Well, we're going to be opening up for our radio audience in just a minute. They're in news break right now, but let me introduce you to my friend and my colleague, our co-host, Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck. 
How are you, Patrick? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Uh, spring is coming, which doesn't mean a whole lot in Los Angeles. I know it means a lot more there, but uh, I'm I'm in good shape. How about you? I'm fine. I'm yes. good. So you stayed up and watched lots of um, things on the radio, uh, rather on television last night about the elections. Well, I just I find the I like to watch the media coverage, how these things are covered, and that uh, that as somebody who, you know, sort of in a in a in a modest way is in the media. I, that, that interests me, how these things are handled. Uh, and, and what did you think of the coverage? Well, I think that it's probably a, it would be a good idea for the Republicans to get on with it and, and get their nominee uh, established, yeah. because the longer it goes on, the more it gives opportunity for people who are not, shall we say, pro- positively disposed to the Republicans to to work in what they think is a good idea for Republicans, and it's just it muddies it all up. It would be much better if there was um, a clear nominee, and I was hoping that would happen. But well, well, what did you think of the media coverage last night? No, I thought that um, it it was generally uh, that they gave equal time to President Obama's speech, which of course I don't blame Obama, but he conveniently scheduled on the day of the Super Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, there's the first press conference he'd given apparently in over three months. Yeah. And uh, that I don't think is fair, but you know that's politics. I mean, I don't. Again, I don't blame him for doing it. That's the way you do it. Yeah. And uh, but but the media gave that it gave that equal time to this event, which which actually is not it's not right. And and also just a lot you know a negative tone to it in general. That. Um, I just think it's not helpful. You know, I mean, this is how the game is played. I think that it would be good if if Newt Gingrich, for one thing, got beyond his ego and got out. I think Newt Gingrich would make an excellent Secretary of State, but he should get out because he's not going to win. He's a regional candidate, and um, it's damaging. And as far as Santorum goes, they should get on with it and and see who's maybe one one or two more rounds and and see. Well, did you compare the uh, the coverage between the the three networks? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was and uh, and all of the networks. Um, and uh, in general, I think it, it's just not good news for the Republicans by any of them. You know, it probably wasn't good news for the for the Democrats to have Clinton and Obama slug it out as long as they did either. But it's just uh, that's the way it goes. I mean, this is real life. You know, this is the way the democratic process works. You know, democracy, so called, is around the world is under siege right now. So we should be grateful that they can do it. Well, you know, in the uh, the Clinton-Obama um, contest, um, uh, it allowed Obama to build a, a, a real solid 50-state infrastructure, and, and they mostly, not completely, but mostly steered away from any kind of personal attacks. But it was pretty nasty there for a while. And I remember, for example, yeah. in the, the, the around Super Tuesday in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, there was talk, you know, the Hillary Clinton people got real ugly. And Bill Clinton started getting in there, making veiled racist remarks, and you know it just was. Re- and Hillary's people were talking about going. Are you asking people? Are you going to the Hussein rally? <laughs> this was in Boston, oh. right? So it, it got kind of uh, of rough. But uh, they, they, I think maybe they just uh, somebody spoke to both sides, and and they bur- they buried the hatchet before it got really damaging. That sounds like you were uh, 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 hearing things coming out of sort of the local campaigns rather than the national campaigns. Well, I don't know where it was coming out of, but Bill Clinton himself was 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 bloviating in a really nasty way, you might recall. Yeah. About I, Obama and very condescending and really kind of, 
yeah. you know, the, the kind of stuff that, that if a Republican had ever said it, they probably would have been taken out and shot. <laughs> well, nobody shoots Republicans these days. You know what I mean. I mean, yeah. it would have been over for yeah. But on the other hand, after the election, um, uh, President Obama appointed Hillary Clinton to be Secretary of State, which I think was a brilliant move. First well, of all, been, secondly, they can work together. Yeah, that might have been part of the same deal that maybe Romney should make with Gingrich or uh, even Santorum. Well, I don't think there was a deal involved in that. Oh, one, I think the, there was a deal in uh, Patrick. I mean, that's that's naive. I mean, this is not new. I mean, look at John Quincy Adams made Henry Clay Secretary of State because he agreed to throw his delegates to him as as president. They called it. Andrew Jackson called it a corrupt deal, but, I mean, that's politics. Okay, well, right now it's politics for us to introduce our radio audience. So from Cyber Station USA and Blog Talk Radio, it's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And it's time to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay, Bradenton, Florida, and KSKQ in Ashland, Oregon, two great places in the United States, both of which I love to visit. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan in California. I'm co- I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morris. He's in Boston, and we would love to have you on the show. Fairnessradio at gmail.com. That's generally the best way to get your que- your questions and comments in. We've had a couple already. And after the show, check out our website www.fairnessradio.com. And for information on Chuck and myself, photographs and blogs, and an opportunity to join the Care to Petition movement supporting causes you care about, and it's free. And also, I want to. Uh, note that uh, we are brought to you by Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. Barton Publishing is your source for information on how to manage your health without using toxic and expensive drugs or even over-the-counter drugs, but using natural ways of going about managing your health. In fact, Chuck, you've actually um, um, really benefited from some of Barton Publishing's information, haven't you? I have. It's excellent. The um Acid reflux information helps you manage your acid reflux by just uh, using food you get in the supermarket. It's not even, you know, you don't have to go to an expensive uh, whole food, you know, organic shopping unless you want to. I happen to like that kind of food, but you can get these things anywhere. And uh, they help you manage things like acid reflux. Today he has an email out talking about uh, various healthy ways and natural ways that a woman can uh, have a better pregnancy. You know, there were all kinds. Of, I mean, he's he's got research on all areas, and it's it's, it's a very very good um, good body of work he does. Well, so you 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 heard it from somebody with experience. Uh, Barton Publishing. That's www.bartonpublishing.com. And when you go to Barton Publishing and you you go through the list of various uh, products that they offer there, for you can look look for things that uh, interest you, like the common cold or rheumatism or allergies. And you decide you want to you want to buy one of their uh, their information packets or one of their books, you'll get a coupon code, and that is a little a little box where you can put in a coupon code. And the coupon code you want to put in is fairness f a i r n e s s, and fairness will get you a twenty percent discount. That sounds pretty fair to me. So don't forget www.bartonpublishing.com, and don't forget to use fairness in the coupon code, and that will get you a discount. Well, where were we before the the, the break, Chuck? Uh, we were talking about uh, the a possible deal uh, between, uh, or, or you would like to see uh, Newt Gingrich uh, be Secretary of State in a Republican administration. Right. Why Newt Gingrich? I think he'd be. I think Newt Gingrich has the intellect and the um, the breadth of knowledge and the background. I just don't think he's going to be president. Huh. And but but he's a great, he's a brilliant guy, and I think he'd be. Um, 
he, he'd be great on the world stage. I mean, he's actually got some background in it. He's not just, you know, kind of a, a political appointee. I mean, he's been around the horn a while. Well, he's been Speaker of the House, obviously. Well, that's yes. huge. Yeah, and, yeah, and, huge. And he's been in Congress for over 20 years, and he's just been, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's got the kind of background that I think would be great. I, I, it's too bad that um, it would be too bad to not have Newt Gingrich in an important position. I mean, he's great. I just don't think he's going to be um, – you know, in the top spot, I don't think I'd want him to be. No, I don't think I, I don't think so either. I'm not sure I'd want him to to run state either. I, I I'm not sure he really has the managerial capability to uh, run an operation as large as sec, as the, the State Department. But because um, uh, because I, I dealt with him when I lived in Atlanta, and his 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 staff was, was kind of chaotic. The, the Speaker's office was a little bit chaotic. Uh, um, he would he would say things and said things were going to happen, and they didn't, and then you had to find the right staff person, and they didn't know, and people came in and out, and uh, I don't know. It, it it seemed like he was his his office was kind of a mirror image of President Clinton's White House. Right. But right. Uh, a little bit chaotic. Well, we hope that maybe he's learned a little bit from his mistakes. Who knows? I mean, he's a brilliant – I think he's a great mind, and uh, I, I love hearing him. I mean, I, I thought it was a dreadful speech um, in Georgia, awful, flat – Dolly should get out. Yeah, yeah, I, and that wasn't his usual speech either. I don't know what yeah, was going on there. Poor. I mean, and plus all this business about running against Wall Street. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. This shows the campaign does show the darker side of the um, Citizens United decision. It really does, because he could get Sheldon Adelson to keep him alive for another week or two by writing a check for five million dollars. You know, it. Uh, you know, I, as much as I support the idea of it, of people. Uh, expressing themselves politically through money because that's that's part of freedom i i think it does show a problem with it i mean it it just does and uh, i'm sure that obama is going to start winding up his money and his super PACs and it's just going to be a huge hopefully i mean in a sense i suppose a boon for people in our industry patrick you and i should figure out how to tap into it uh, you know that, that i was just thinking that <laughs> We are the, the 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 perfect advertising vehicle for people in politics because our our uh, audience is on both sides. So right. hear that out there. If you're running for office, come talk to us. Yes. Yes. Um, the other uh, the other interesting uh, analysis from the uh, last night's election is that in um, Ohio, more Catholics voted for Romney than for Santorum, which I think puts to to bed the myth about uh, Mormonism being bad. Or at least well, Catholic no, like Santorum. I think that they think that, in a sense, it's like um, the same phenomenon happens with a Jewish candidate who's, as they say in our amongst the tribesmen here, <laughs> he's too Jewish. Uh, okay. <laughs> Santorum is too Catholic. It's to the point where he makes Catholics feel uneasy. Oh, I, I never heard that about being too Jewish. Are you too Jewish? Um, in some ways, I am. Okay, you know. all right. It's been said. Okay. Well, you know, it, it's like you're too out there, too outspoken about, you know, your faith in public, and it just makes people uncomfortable. I mean, I'm not talking about whether he should or shouldn't. I'm talking about yeah. perceptions in politics. Yeah. And, you know that uh, that as a result, they'll get Jews all voting against a Jewish candidate who does that. And I think the same phenomena happened with um, Santorum and Catholics. 
Well, Patrick, I, I, you should know about that because you're Catholic. Um, but anyway, moving on. No, I'm not on, Catholic. I was, I was raised Catholic, but uh, the, right, I know. and re- realized that the Catholic Church is a very large multinational corporation and left it early. I didn't know it was incorporated. Um, it's incorporated in a lot of places as a nonprofit, they have, but they it, have it, it behaves. You keep interrupting me. It behaves oh. like a nonprofit. It behaves like a corporation. Even has sales and even runs a publishing company that puts out pornography, but. Um, in any case, uh, we have to take a break, and when we come back, we're going we're gonna to have a guest with us, um, we're, and he's going to ask the question, is there a self-made man, or is that a myth? Stay tuned. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Radio. Don't forget, you can be part of this uh, of Fairness Radio with email at uh, fairnessradio@gmail.com. You can also call us 424-675-6806. Don't forget, our Blog Talk listeners, we are heard on terrestrial radio stations. So please, if you call in, remember, don't say anything that you wouldn't want your mother to hear you say, because we have to uh, abide by the FCC regulations on the seven dirty words. So, but but please do call in. And also I wanted to uh, just remind us, remind everybody that this uh, segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, www.barton.com, your source of information on how to manage your health. Well, Republicans have been talking about job creators, which is a term created by their their strategist, Frank Lutz, to replace the Democratic term, rich CEOs. So what's the truth? Are there self-made men and women who single-handedly create industries that we all rely on? Or did they build those industries with the help of other people and a vast infrastructure built for and paid for by the taxpayers? Well, our next guest is one of the wealthy, but he says that the Horatio Alger and Rand story of one man creating a business from nothing is a myth. His new book, The Self-Made Myth, lays out why. Mike Lapham is the co-founder and director of United for a Fair Economy's Wealth Project. Mike, welcome to Fairness Radio. Thanks for having me on again. Yes, and you know, Chuck mentioned that, that you have been on with us before. You talked about uh, uh, a responsible wealth earlier, and that, that had slipped my mind, but it's good to have you back, particularly with your new book out. Well, since our readers haven't had a chance to buy your book yet, and they should, uh, maybe you could give us a little hint as to what's inside of it. Sure. Um, and, it, you know, if, if people want to take a, a peek inside, they can go to uh, the selfmademyth.org, just selfmademyth.org. There's uh, all sorts of information, including uh, a little peek inside at some of the profiles. But basically, uh, the book is debunking the idea that um, business success is, is solely the result of one individual who gets up earlier, works harder, is more creative, and... Uh, you know, is responsible for all the success of a con- company. And if you believe that, then you're likely to believe that uh, we should take taxes off that guy, that we should we should get government off his back and let him do more of that stuff. Um, and we tell a different story. Uh, we believe that, you know, that, that there's more of a built-together reality instead of a self-made myth 
um, that we're all in this together. That that um, sure people work hard, um, and there's a bit of you know, there's luck involved. There's other people's contributions, but there's a big chunk of that success is also investments by government that make business success possible. Well, Steve Jobs created Apple in his garage. Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook in his dorm room. Ted Turner took a dying billboard company and created uh, cable television. Warren Buffett created Berkshire Hathaway in a three-bedroom house he still lives in. Aren't these examples of job creators who did it by themselves? Uh, absolutely not. You know, they, they had good ideas. They had, uh, you know, a lot of those folks actually benefited from uh, just luck of, of timing of when they were doing things. Um, they they worked hard. I'm sure they were very creative um, and, you know, good leaders, et cetera. But, uh, you know, the Internet was created out of government research. Where would, that, where would they be without that? How many of them relied on our whole patent system, our whole legal structure that's been built over uh, you know, centuries. Um, uh, how many of them relied on publicly educated workers? How many of them were publicly educated themselves to have to even go get the ideas? How many of them used research that they had done as a, as a graduate student? As many of the people profiled in our book talk about. You know, Jerry Fiddler started Wind River Systems, which he ultimately sold for uh, something like I don't know. Four hundred million dollars. Want to Intel. tell listeners what Wind River Systems is? Oh sure, Wind River Systems is a company that built all of the embedded software. You never think about it, but inside your camera, inside the internet, inside those Mars rover landers is little embedded software that makes the whole thing tick. And uh, Jerry wouldn't have even gone to school if it hadn't been for, you know, to, to higher education without. Um, assistance from the government. He wouldn't have gone to graduate school, certainly. And then he ended up working at a, a lab and took some of the ideas that he developed there about embedded software and created this company that did great things. Well, you have a number of these kinds of examples in your book, and uh, one that uh, struck me is uh, Amy Domini, but because uh, uh, I've met Amy a number of times. You want to talk about why regulation made it possible for Amy to, to create an investment fund that's been highly successful? That seems to be counterintuitive. Sure. I mean, it's not often that you hear uh, business people talk about the importance of regulation, but but many of the people in this book do, if you really probe. And you ask them, you know, Amy will talk, Amy Domini, you know, Domini Social Investments, she'll talk about how the whole mutual fund industry you should have great confidence if you're an investor. You invest in a mutual fund, you know what you're getting. You in, invest in a hedge fund that's not regulated, you have no idea. It's a black box. They won't tell you anything. Um, so her entire industry wouldn't, wouldn't be as successful as it is without that regulation so that you know what you're getting when you invest in it. Um, you know, There's a, a, several other examples. Jim Sherbloom, who will be talking at our event, tomorrow night at the Boston Public Library at 6 o'clock, if there are any of your listeners in Boston. Um, Jim Sherbloom was the CFO of Genzyme for a number of years, and you know he talks about the importance of regulation in you know, the pharmaceutical industry. And people, people, it's important to have these rules of the road that people can follow. They know when they're investing, they're, that something has been vetted and they're going to get what they're investing for. 
Well, why do we hear so much um, resistance to regulation then from the business community if if it's true, as you claim, that that regulation really makes it possible for businesses to uh, to start up, and, and particularly in the financial area, to start up and be successful? I mean, look, there's no question that regulation sometimes goes too far. Everyone can, you know, has heard examples of that. Um, but I think we take for granted the extent to which all of these industries, um, we all rely day-to-day on regulation. Um, you know, and part of, the, part of the problem here is that we've set up this myth that says these wealthy people did it all on their own with no help from anyone. Therefore, we need to keep their taxes low so that they can do more of that. And then we lump in with the, which is a fallacy to begin with, and then we lump in with them all rich people and all investors, and we call them job creators. We've heard this over and over uh, in the past couple of years, the job creators. We can't, we have to keep taxes low for these job creators. Well, uh, there's a gentleman by the name Nick Hanauer out in Seattle who wrote a really good op-ed recently in the Seattle Times, and he basically said, I'm not a job creator. I've created several companies with several hundred employees but I'm not the job creator. I can't create a business unless there's demand. And we need middle, a strong middle class who want to buy stuff. Yes, then I, can, then I can hire somebody to meet that demand. But what we're doing, what we've been doing, is starving the middle class, starving the working class folks, and more and more income is going to the wealthiest, and they're paying less and less taxes. Something like, you know, if you're in the top 1%, in the last decade, your income doubled. In the last 0.1%, it tripled. 0.01% went up quadruple. You know, meanwhile, we're saying we can't afford to invest in the things that we need as a, as a country. We can't afford to invest in, in public transportation. Where the T is you know, crying poor. They are poor. <laughs> you know, we can't afford to keep up our parks. We can't afford to invest in education. We can't afford to give... Uh, student loans and, and grants, Pell Grants, you know, that's, that's stuff that's going to investments in the future and opportunity for the future. And if we're not investing in that stuff, then we're going to be in big trouble. So you're saying that if we don't make those investments now, the so-called job creators of the future aren't going to exist because they won't have the infrastructure to, to build their new companies on? Yeah, I mean, the people in this book, you know, the members of Responsible Wealth and the people profiled in this book get that, you know, Martin Rothenberg, who founded Syracuse Language Systems, he gets that, you know, his education was totally made possible through public investments. He went, he got to start in the library in Brooklyn, the public library, and he read every book on electronics, and he went, out, went to school on the GI Bill after the war, and he ultimately founded the Syracuse language systems, you know, that built on all of that investment in him. And so these are people who get Thelma Kidd, who founded a bookstore, you know, had one of the first SBA loans to women. Ben Cohen from Ben and Jerry's, there's a piece in the book about him and how he benefited from public investment and how all the people in Vermont, you know, one out of 100 people in Vermont invested in that company. Wow. And they kept the pay ratio low, and he even credits the cows. <laughs> you know, he, he's, uh. these are people who get that you got to spread the credit around where credit is due. They they're entitled to a big chunk, as uh, as uh, uh, the Senate candidate whose name is 
Elizabeth Warren uh, has said, you know, sure, you did these great things. You're entitled to a big chunk of it, she says. But remember that those roads that you're taking your products on were built by us, the taxpayers. Your employees educated by us and well, on down the line. Well, speaking speaking of roads, you've got an example in there which has one of my favorite products in it, Fat Tire Beer and, and Kim Jordan. <laughs> so what did Kim Jordan have to say? She founded the New Belgium uh, Brewing Company, which is now a national brewing company. What did she have to say that went into to her being able to build that business from nothing? Well, there's a, there's a whole series of things in, in her case. Um, uh, what, the best quote is that she says beer is heavy, and, <laughs> and, and you've got to transport so. it around on the roads. And where would we be without you know, well-built roads? We wouldn't get much of our beer to, to the markets. Um, but, you know, she, again, uh, benefited from Pell Grants and a public university and the local development authority that uh, invested in businesses like hers, the research at the local University of Colorado, um, you know, she says the notion of a self-made person is a stretch, you know, and she knows what she's talking about. She She's built a big business, but but she spreads the credit around. Well, uh, I'm going to introduce you to to my friend and colleague, Chuck Morris, uh, after one more question. And, and the question is, once a business is created and somebody like Ted Turner or Mark Zuckerberg or, or Kim Jordan has has built it up, regardless of where the sources came from, why shouldn't the business be able to keep all it earns? Why should it have to pay taxes? Well, first of all, if if we're not paying taxes, you know, all of these all of these investments by government wouldn't exist. Uh, clearly, uh, people who are benefiting from all these things should pay. You know, uh, average citizens should pay. Um, investors should should pay taxes. People, uh, anyone who's driving on the roads, um, et cetera, using the schools on down the line. But, you know, companies, the bigger the company, the more you're benefiting from all of these public investments. The more you benefit from having an Internet to do your business on, the more employees of yours that are publicly educated, you know, the more people who contributed to your success, um, the more regulations preserve your ability to do what you do. Say you have a, a trademarked uh, property, you know, look at uh, all sorts of companies. I mean, Martin Rothenberg, again, uh, had to sue Abigail Disney, who is uh, is quoted in this in this report, says her great-grandfather had a character called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, and someone else snatched it up and started using it, and he lost that. So from then on, he copyrighted Snow White, Mickey Mouse, the Seven Dwarfs, uh, <laughs> and, you know, Disney became Disney, partly because of that legal protection. And she also credits the uh, the interstate highway system for getting people to Disneyland and Disney World. So, you know, when people give an honest accounting of where their success comes from, you you see a much different story than the the self-made myth. Uh, Chuck, do you want to chime in on this? Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Mike, I I think that you're perpetrating here this myth of, of the self-made myth. <laughs> First of all, you know, it, it's natural for like anyone. It. You're welcome. It, it's it's only natural and obvious that anyone who is successful or, or the vast majority of people who are successful work with other people. I mean, we're all social beings. You know, you don't do it in a vacuum. And that um, 
this idea that um, anybody would be against regulation is also a myth. It's not regulation that people are against. It's bad regulation that, that many people oppose, uh, whether they be conservative or liberal. And that bad regulation is either regulation that would be against business, would be inhibiting business, such as certain free trade laws, and uh, which allow foreign imports to dump on the American market, and it hurts labor, and it hurts um, uh, domestic industry. Or you, whether it be... Oh, whether it I haven't be, heard business people talking about good regulation, though. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I, I think that it happens all the time. A, a, or whether it be such situations as the government raising money to pay people not to work um, and to not engage in uh, regulations that are positive for business, that are pro-business. Now, as far as you know, investing the government investing in infrastructure – I don't think that's controversial. I don't think anyone's opposed to that. I mean, you have situations where a corporation asks a state or a community to invest in building roads or building what whatnot in order for them to locate there, which is something that most people support. It's more to do with, um, you know, this idea that um, that there are regulations like, like for example, forcing banks to give uh, mortgages to people who couldn't afford them that th these are bad regulations, and they're regulations that rip everyone else off eventually by putting everybody mm -hmm. underground in terms of the value of their real estate. So I think the argument is... Yeah, I'm not sure the banks were forced to give mortgages to people. I think they were very happy to give mortgages and no, they, they would make a lot of money. I've interviewed bankers both on and off the record over the years who have said that they were pressured... Um, by regulatory agencies to give mortgages to people, not ask them questions mm -hmm. about their creditworthiness or their, their employment and whatnot okay. in order to meet numbers of mortgages. And that's why there were so many of these bad mortgages that got marbled into these uh, bundles and these, and then they, of course, were used to leverage with credit default swaps. This was as a result of bad regulation, not no regulation. There were bad regulations yeah. put in place, and we could go through other examples. So I don't think that people are opposed to good regulations that actually encourage business and then encourage yeah. capital accumulation. Now, as far but as I don't taxes think, go, the, the, the bottom I don't think that that's what you hear, though. If you, if you hear the politicians talking, you know, in the re Republican you know, primaries, they're they're saying get government off their back. They're not nuancing it and saying there's good regulation and bad regulation. They're yeah, not saying there's good mean. tax and bad tax. They're saying we have to take taxes off the rich, you know. And 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 Romney says I would I would cut you know all government spend. You know they they make these broad statements and and they're basically there is no tax that's a good tax as far as they're no, concerned. You know I disagree with that, Mike. I think that you're claiming that they're anarchists. What they're saying is that there can be cuts in, in various agencies of government because they're involved in either waste or they're involved in bad regulations that hurt business. Not getting rid of all government. I mean, there's, they, they, they aren't, these people aren't anarchists. I'll grant you that if you go to the very far right, you know, the, as you say, the Ayn Rand people, maybe the best, the best representative of that would be Ron Paul then, yeah, you have people who just view government as something that only has local policing and, uh, and contract upholdment, and, 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 and that's about all, and keeps an army. But the vast majority of conservatives aren't that far right. They recognize right. I, I don't that, hear them praising government, though. I don't ever hear them saying, 
you know, I'm grateful that we have a government that invests in education, that invests in research, that invests in regulation, that makes my business possible. You don't hear any of that. And that's what the, this book, our book, The Self-Made Myth, is about, is saying we need to tell a new story. We need to tell a new narrative that is a more honest reflection of government's role in, in creating business success. And then we can have a more honest discussion. Well, look, I'll agree with you in that conservatives generally don't trust government, uh, and they view government like what President, like what uh, George Washington said, as a necessary evil that has to be bound down by the chains of the law, by the Constitution. I don't remember the exact quote. He referred to government as a fearful master. That is a part of what the conservative ethos. There's no question about that. But that doesn't mean that um, they're not seeking honest government with solid regulations that maintain good business practices and law and order and whatnot. It's just a, you know, it, that's kind of a given. And this idea that uh, anybody would claim to be a completely self-made person as if they exist in a vacuum, that, that nobody is, no one believes that. Everyone understands that we're interdependent, that we're social beings, that we have to work with other people, you know. But yet at the same time, I think that a guy like Steve Jobs or whoever that we could point to that was successful – they really did create something because they made certain decisions, right. so they had certain insights, right. no, I, I and, and they were able Absolutely. to make that happen. Sure, and we don't, we definitely don't take away the hard work, the leadership, the creativity that goes in to that. Um, you know, there's also other factors that uh, don't have to do with government's investment. You know, uh, privilege, being born white and male, born wealthy, as as uh, a lot of uh, successful business people were. Um, a lot of uh, it comes down to luck and just plain historical sure. timing, you know. That, but what what the people in this book recognize is that there are a lot of factors that that are supported by government, you know, that it, that make this fertile ground possible for them to develop their business. So whether it's investments in public education, in their own or their 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 employees, whether it's investments in opportunity like Pell Grants and the GI Bill and SBA loans, you know, you don't hear people talking about giving credit to the portion of it. You know, uh, Elizabeth Warren says, great, keep a good chunk of what you did. You did a good thing. You built a good business. Good for you. But remember all these investments, and you don't hear it. You don't hear well, it out I, of business I, people's mouths, and you, you don't know, hear I, it out I of politicians' mouths either. I think that what you're describing is not particularly controversial in that we all recognize that good investment and good you know, regulations that are pro-business are good. But what conservatives are concerned about is the bad investment and the bad regulations, the giving money to people for not working, the expansion in the debt to $16 trillion, You know whether that can be afforded. And these sorts of things, which are things that I don't hear liberals talking about, actually. And uh, right. so I don't think that what you're saying is controversial. We all know that it's important to have you know, public infrastructure. I mean, I don't think that's even, you know, debated. It's, it's the waste that's involved. You know, the growth, the growth of the welfare state, the growth of the national debt, the growth of agencies that are getting involved in areas that are beyond what they were supposed to be involved in, the erosion well, of individual freedom. let's take this one area, Let's take it this one area of taxing the wealth, the wealthy. So in 2000, 2001, George Bush comes into office. He's got looking at a $5.6 trillion surplus for 10 years, right? What does he do? He gave away about half of that in tax cuts, 
mostly for the wealthy. And, you know, Obama has come into office, now inherited uh, not only a, a very different fiscal picture, but, you know, a recession, huge, you know, the Great Depression or re Great Recession. And now we've continued these tax cuts. Where, you know, it's like keeping the, the dying patient, you know, keeping on putting poison into him. We are we're ultimately, because of this argument that we cannot tax business, we cannot tax rich people, we have more than enough money in this country. We, wealthy people have more than enough money. And you talk to the people in this book, you know, Martin Rothenberg says, of all the years I sat on the management committee of my company, no one once mentioned tax rates. And, and you, you talk about Warren Buffett. He, doesn't, he says, I, I don't make do my investments based on what the tax rate is. I make an investment because it's a good investment. So the idea that we have to take taxes off the wealthy and starve our country of positive investments in, our, in, in these types of things is just plain wrong, and I do see it happening. We have to take a, a, a quick uh, station, station identification. Uh, uh, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the, the uh, Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station Radio Network, and our radio affiliates. Uh, we are talking with Mike Lapham. He's the author of The Self-Made Myth, and we're discussing whether or not there are self-made businesses and who's all involved in that. Uh, Mike, can you stay on for a few more minutes? I can, and I should point out that I have a co-author who's Brian Miller. I didn't do this alone, believe it or not. <laughs> and if people want more information about the book, selfmademyth.org has all the information, including about our event tomorrow in Boston. Now tell us about the event in Boston real quick. I'm sorry, that's tonight in Boston. Tonight, it's yeah. at the Boston Public Library at 6 o'clock. We have three people from in the book. Uh, Amy Dominey will be there to speak, Glenn Lloyd from uh, City Fresh Foods in Roxbury, and Jim Sherbloom, who used to be at Genzyme, and will be uh, at the Boston Public Library in Copley Square at 6 o'clock. I'm going to try to get down there. Um, Mike, the only thing I'd say is that... Take the um, publicly funded. Yes, exactly. well, that's right, but also you have to pay two bucks. Um, the only thing I'd point <laughs> out, and that. there's a lot of waste in that agency, by the way. Um, the, the thing I'd point out is as far as the Bush tax cuts go, I got a check for $300, and I'm far from rich. And I think that there were the money stimulated the economy. Even the Boston Globe admitted at the time that after 9-11, we were facing a major recession, and that by allowing more capital in the pockets of people, it did stimulate the economy in a way and that I agree. actually – and, and it did so in a way that was positive because it didn't create more debt. It didn't borrow money and allow politicians to hand it out to friends. What it did was it gave back to people – money that they own and that they had paid into the system in the form of a rebate. And right. I think and that if you uh, put it in working working folks, if you put there's no better stimulus than putting money in the hands of working folks, money in the hands of rich folks who are going to put it all in the bank, it, it's not the same stimulus. It's a whole different story. Well, first of all, I mean the the there's an article recently that indicates that uh, almost 50% of the lower income in America pay no federal taxes at all. And, that's federal, uh, what, what, federal income tax, yes, federal yeah, income that's tax right. only. So, I mean, I don't think that those, I think those tax policies taxes. Next, yeah. Well, that goes back to Reagan's earned income tax credit. And uh, I don't know if I'm all that comfortable with that. I think that everybody should pay something to live in the society. Oh, by, for, by all means, and, and people do. I mean, if you're a working person and hearing you say that, Chuck, I mean, I think you're going to take offense <clears throat> to say, that you're a freeloader or something. The reality is working people are paying local, 
state, uh, federal taxes, um, yes, maybe 50% of them uh, are not paying the federal income tax, but they're paying state income taxes, they're paying sales taxes, they're paying property taxes, all of which create, all of which go into creating this infrastructure. To say that 50% of the population is getting a free ride is, I would say, insulting to to that 50% of the population. No, I'm not saying they're getting a free ride, but I'm not all that comfortable Uh with people paying zero federal income tax because we all contribute to the national, should contribute directly to the national government. But the issue of, of, of the local tax, again, I mean, it comes down to not whether we should be paying taxes. I think we all agree we should. It comes down to this phenomena of the federal government and state governments engaging in wasteful practices. You know, there's now something like four, over 4 million federal employees, and now you have them unionizing and getting benefits. And there's, there's this massive, top-heavy public infrastructure. We want it to be there. We want it to work efficiently, but we want it to be accountable because we're taking money out of our pockets, as you say, money that would otherwise right. go to our families, and we're right. giving it to them. So we want accountability right. and, there. And I, and I don't think anyone would disagree with you on that. No one wants their money, their tax money wasted. Um, and the reality is everyone can look at the federal budget and say, I don't want that one thing. I don't want to pay for welfare. I don't want to pay for foreign aid. I don't want to pay for the military. I don't want to pay for um, you know, education because I don't have children, um, whatever it may be. Um, so everyone's got their beef. But the reality is we make these decisions as a whole. And the, the bigger, the more important question is, what's the appropriate level of government? So we have to agree on that. And what's the appropriate distribution and who should pay more taxes? And one of our biggest points is that people at the top um, should need to pay more taxes in, in, this current, in this current situation that we're in. We should have a stronger estate tax. We should take the Bush tax cuts and, re, and roll them back uh, to pre-Bush tax cuts level. And we should the capital gains rate. We shouldn't have people like the self-made Mitt uh, Romney walking around getting a 15% tax rate on on his investments. You know, while people who are out there earning are paying much higher. You know, up to up to 35% rate. That that's what doesn't make sense. So I mean, well, I the, think money, there's, the, the money was already taxed here. The money was already taxed once, but, you know, look, I mean, somebody okay, who is very wealthy. I mean, that double taxation and I, is... And I know we've talked about this before. There's nothing stopping them from writing a check to the government. In fact, there's actually a little check mark on the income tax return where they can right. actually give more right. money so, to the federal government. And uh, so it's not a so matter of whether a, or not... So you want to have a voluntary Mike, tax... You have the last word here. Thank you, Mike. Well, so you, you want to have a voluntary tax... Uh, I mean that's that's just absurd that people should voluntarily pay. The idea, the, the important thing is that we need to raise taxes on the folks who have the ability to pay. It's it's not uh, it's not linked to to jobs. I mean the message of this book, the self-made myth, is that you built a company, you did it with a lot of help. Um, we're having this event tomorrow night in Bo- or, I'm sorry again tonight, tonight. Wednesday mm-hmm. night, Boston Public Library, six o'clock. Hope people will come out. And check the website, selfmademyth.org. And it's been a pleasure talking to both of you. It's been Thank a pleasure, you, Mike. Mike. Thank you, Mike. Uh, and again, the book is The Self Made Myth by Brian Miller and Mike Lapham. And it's uh, available online at Amazon.com and, and other fine online bookstores. And don't forget, if you're in the Boston area, 
The event is tonight, not tomorrow night, at 6 p.m. At, at the beautiful, historic Boston Public Library. Thanks again, Mike. We're going to take a quick break, and then we shall return in about uh, 30 seconds. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Radio with Chuck and Patrick, broadcast on Blog Talk Radio and uh, Cyber Station Radio, Cyber Station USA Radio Network, and our radio stations. And this uh, segment has been brought to you by Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com, a place to go for all of your medical advice needs uh, in order to manage your body to keep it perfectly healthy without resorting to toxic or expensive drugs. That's www bartonpublishing.com. Don't forget to use fairness, the word fairness in the uh, coupon code. And those sounds like the uh, the gremlins are in the the uh, the music app today. I'm going to have to take a look at that because that was a little was, was a little loud to you when it came on there, Chuck. That sounded good. Okay, all right. I, I had to sort of pull my earphones uh, away from my uh, my head there. Uh, well, uh, I I kind I enjoyed that. Um, I. And, and I hope you do get a chance to go to the uh, the event tonight. You get all these events tonight. You had Mitt Romney's party last night, which I know you didn't go to, but still it looked like a great party. Right. And now you're going to have uh, Mark Lapham and Amy Domini, who is one of the heroines, the heroes of the investment world. I don't know. You, you know about Amy Domini? Patrick, what I know is that you have a lot of very rich, ultra-liberal friends. <laughs> I wish. No, I, mean, I have Mike a couple Lapham, of them. Mike Lapham that comes to mind, for one. Oh, he's not a friend. I've well, never met him. I, you know what I mean. You know, most of these people are liberal, as we've talked about, and they're very, very rich. Why can't any of them invest in Fairness Radio? For them to write a check for maybe fifty grand, it's like pocket change. Well, that, that's an interesting way of uh, of looking at it. Um, I mean, they seem to be so racked with guilt over not sending more, the federal government more money. <laughs> I love uh, racked with guilt. Which is certainly not um, a problem if, if they – I mean, nothing would prevent them from writing a check. I mean, it's interesting that they don't seem to get around to doing it. They want to have the government enforce them to do it, then they'll do it. But uh, either way, I mean, why, why, why not have them invest? We'll, we'll put them on the air. We'll give them airtime. If they just give us a lousy, you know, like like um, Nathan, like Nathan Detroit said in Guys and Dolls, yeah. with a lousy, if I only had a lousy little grant, I could be a millionaire. I'm trying to remember where he said that. Yeah, that's one of the lines in that thing. Oh, okay, because my, my wife has actually produced that and acted in it. I'm trying to remember it, but I'll take the word for it. Um, you know, there there is a new uh, liberal radio station that's uh, launched in Washington, D.C., and I do know the people who invested in it and launched it. Mm-hmm. And I pitched our show, and, and uh, my friend said, yeah, that might be kind of interesting. But the other investor said, no, nah, there's, there's 3,000 conservative talkers on the air. There's only 50 liberal talkers on the air, and we're not going to give airtime to another one. That's right, and that's what, that was the attitude when, which we came across. They don't want to have a left-right discussion. It's all well, in their case, they didn't want to have a left, uh, a right discussion. They were fine with the left discussion. Right. Everybody has to be on the left. You know, it's interesting that um, for that station. 
Yeah, and, and you know, it, it kind of gives somewhat of a, um, a jaundiced and, and false view of things because conservatives generally do let liberals come in. They I mean, do. Take a look at Fox News. I mean, they've got liberals. They've got, you know, they've got uh, who is it? They've got a bunch of people. They've got Becker. Have you, have you watched this uh, five? What is it called? The, 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 you talking about Bob Beckel? Bob Beckel oh. and, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know, Combs, Alan Combs. Yeah. And, and most of you look at O'Reilly, and I've been watching him lately. He gives a lot of time to liberal guests. You, you know, you, you generally, they, they do that in general, whereas from the left, it's everybody has to be goose-stepping along and <laughs> lockstep, you know, and it's, uh, they, uh, they, they, they fall, it's like they, they need smelling salts if somebody expresses a conservative opinion. Well, well, well I... Bob Beckel is, is an old, old friend of mine. Uh, we worked together in the 1984 Democratic Convention and in actually three conventions since then. At one point, I was actually his media agent. And uh, oh. um, he, is, he is a liberal, uh, very much so, but um, he is not really engaged in liberal politics now. I noticed that uh, Glenn Beck had claimed that uh, Fox is chock full of liberals, but then when he was asked to, to name some of them, the only name he could come up with was, was Glenn Beck. And as far as O'Reilly having liberals on, yeah, he gets them on and then he harasses the daylights out of them. Sure, but they get a lot of their time. And, and they get uh, – and I don't think he – I think he's fairly respectful. I've been watching him lately. Uh, well, you and I have a different he's definition very, of respect. He's very teacher-like. I mean, I think he's a former high school teacher. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's uh, – you know, he's he's kind of a moralist for sure. Yeah, that's that's for that's for sure. He's more like the the sister Mary Immaculata who used to whack you on your knuckles uh, than than a teacher. And by the way, Patrick, when I say that you're Catholic, I don't mean that you're adhere to the organization and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. I mean that more just spiritually and in terms of your your worldview. It's very Catholic. For the small C. Right. Yeah. Well, it, universal. I mean, I've seen a lot of the world, so uh, definitely there, uh, but definitely not Catholic with, with with a big C. No, I know that, and I'm not. I, I wouldn't claim it. I just. I think you have a Catholic mind, probably a Catholic heart. Well, you know, when you go to Jesuit schools, it, it kind of rubs off. Sure. <laughs> right? They uh, they make you deal with facts and think logically. Right, but also there's a certain moral side to it that you have that people maybe who are not Catholic and on the left don't have. You know, well, no, I think people on the left are highly moral. That's why there's so insensitive conservatives who will say anything and do anything just to get power. I think all the morality in our society is actually on the left. It's conservatives who are being immoral in many cases. Patrick, let's not go on. Not, not, you're getting silly in the final minutes of the show. <laughs> As if somehow the left isn't into power and they're not trying to do anything they can to get, get that, power. That's absolutely the case. The Republicans are only about winning. They could care less about governing and doing the right thing. They're only about winning. Oh, again, Patrick, you're going off into oh, no. silly land. Oh, no. no, I mean, it's it's actually quite the opposite. Uh, I think Republicans, and, and by, for that matter, the Catholic Church, sure, they want to have influence, and in the case of political parties, they want to have power, but there is some scruples there. I mean, there are some, there's at least a, a semblance of a, um, a moral vision and a moral code. It's not just sheer power, which I, I would argue is the left paradigm, but, you know, again, I mean, I, I say that in a balanced sense, and that um, part of human nature, which Republicans, rec conservatives recognize. As do liberals. Well, it's non-utopian. In other words, they recognize that human beings are always going to try to get power. The question uh, is how they use it. 
well, from what I can tell, that uh, Republicans and, and particularly conservative Republicans are only about getting power, and once they get in power, they, they jettison any kind of, uh, uh, of morals that they pre- they pretended to use to, to get there. Liberals do want power, too, but I see that they're moral, and one of the reasons why they don't get power as much as Republicans is they're too busy discussing the morality of what they're doing to worry about getting the votes. But uh, we obviously see that from different ways. No, I think that I see, it, I see it as just in a more balanced way that it's human nature to want to win and to get power. The question is, is it winning for winning's sake, you know, to accumulate power to change the human nature, or is it uh, winning to, uh, to kind of uh, uphold some, uh, you know, basic standards? And uh, not, not. I think that in a sense, I, I heard and I can't quote it. But Rick Santorum, in his acceptance speech last night, expressed this, I think, pretty well when he said he's not trying to just become the the powerful man, you know, in in the world. He's not running for president for that sake. Now, whether he is or not, that's another question. Yeah, right. But he expressed this view, which I think is quite different than, frankly, Obama's view, in that he, he was more interested in, you know, Republicans are criticized for saying, well, why do you want to hold office when you're not going to do all these things? It's because they want to limit the the government and they want to leave the natural power with people. I mean, at least philosophically. Now, that doesn't mean that they always live up to their creed. But it's not this idea of creating the the, the hero, the, the Fuhrer princep, to use a European term, um, you, know, you know, where where they basically are involved in a personality cult, where you see uh, people like that, and also this idea that they're going to change literally human nature, even biologically, not to mention socially. It's more of an idea of we're going to hold the reins of government so that things people can make their own decisions about their own lives and, and that we're going to limit government. And in a sense, it opens them up to various criticisms. I know that people have criticized me for this, liberals. They said, well, why do you want to run for office? You, you, why do Republicans? They, don't, they go in and they don't want to do anything. Well, that, they just want to cut back on things. They want no, well, I would disagree with that. The Republicans do want to, to, to do things when they get into office, and they do have cults of personality, Reagan being the latest one. It's, it's when they get into office, it's things they want to do. They talk about small government, and then they set up bureaucracies to inspect every woman's womb. They talk about not getting involved in your life, and, and then, they, then they pass laws saying that uh, doctors have to say these particular things. Uh, I think what it is is, is that re- Republicans do want to change society. They want to have a utopian capitalistic free market society, which has never worked and never will, but they want it. And secondly, they want to be able to dictate how people live their lives, but they're not interested in, in dictating how people earn money and, and, uh, and hire and fire and things like that. They're interested in moral changes what they call moral, which really are intrusive in people's lives, and we've seen we're seeing that in states across the country now, how they want to intrude in women's lives. They don't want small governments. They're quite happy to have larger governments. We have the the uh, governor of Florida now saying that anybody who who gets unemployment has to take a drug test. Of course, the fact that he happens to invest in the company that does the drug test and gets millions of dollars has nothing to do with that. But there's a huge intrusiveness. People paying unemployment insurance for years, then they have to take a drug test because Republicans think it's moral. That's what I mean. It's the hypocrisy of the Republicans. They only want power, and when they get power, they want to interfere in people's personal lives and then, and then say that they're being moral about it. That, that's, that's, that's where I come from in, in this argument, and I realize you don't, you don't agree with that. I happen to see that's, that. That's how I happen to see it, Chuck. First of all, Patrick, capitalism is not utopian. Boy, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and no, and, and nor is it meant to be. It's just a recognition of, of 
it's a recognition of the human condition. It's not trying to create a new kind of a man. And Reagan did not have a personality cult. He does now. No, he never really does, and nor did he by conservatives. This is, you know, it's not like you never see Reagan with these gigantic pictures and with, with a close-up of his face on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, he didn't, and nor does he amongst conservatives. Uh, well, He's admired, but generally conservatives don't look at life that way. We criticize. We're not involved in hero worship at all. So no, I don't agree with that. But, okay. Patrick, we'll have to take it up tomorrow. It looks like we're out of time. We are going to take it up tomorrow. And tomorrow we have um, Albert Navarro with us, and he's going to talk about some constitutional issues regarding uh, the government killing Americans. Michael Schumann will be with us talking about spending your dollars locally. And David Barker from the uh, American Enterprise Institute is going to talk about debt and growth in America. So that's it for today. You've been listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick from Blog Talk Radio, Cyber Station USA, and our affiliates. Visit our website, fairnessradio.com, and there's a new blog up there. I think you may want to get involved in commenting on that blog. There's also photos and petitions, and don't forget our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. And we'll see everybody tomorrow, same time, same channel. Okay, take care.